I'll invite the rest of you to take out your Bibles. Turn with me as we go to the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. While you're turning there, just a quick announcement. Uh, it seems like we're pretty much official. It looks like our building renovations are finally going to get started, and they are planning on January 29th. So it's just around the corner. So what does this mean for all of you? Uh, not a lot initially. Uh, we're going to begin with some downstairs work and some balcony work. There may be one or two weeks that the balcony will be closed. So balcony people, you may want to get here early so you can get the best seats down here. But uh, we'll try to keep you updated on that progress as it unfolds. And then as we anticipate moving the stage around, we're going to be flipping things temporarily to kind of carry us over while everything is happening up here on this side of the auditorium. And while that's occurring, Tom's already working on helping to craft some sort of a plan so that um, in the brief period of time we have, we're going to need help. And we'll try to align um, our needs with your availability. So we're going to be asking you to consider the possibility of coming out and helping us with things. And we want to be real organized so we do not waste your time. And the time that you spend, we can actually get a lot accomplished because we will save thousands of dollars if we dismantle and move most of this stuff ourselves. So we might incorporate some of the life groups that week and uh, maybe some of the men at least come out here on that evening to help us out. And my goodness, maybe some of you ladies, I, I, you know, some of y'all are pretty tough. So we can use your help at that time. All right, well, looking at Ephesians 3, uh, let me just start out with a question for all of you. I want you to stop and think about when was the last time you got to experience something of immense power? Took you back in some way. For me, one of the things that uh, still stands out in my mind, I have several I can go into, but one in particular was the very first time I ever got launched off an aircraft carrier. Uh, our instructors spent all kinds of time on us. They were investing in us and they were trying to prepare us to say, okay, here's the kind of things you can expect. You know, you're going to go from zero to about 140 miles an hour in about two and a half seconds. It's going to pin you to the back of the seat. Um, there's going to be a rush of emotion you're going to feel. Don't hold the stick. Just put your hand in your lap, and when the cat shot goes, the stick is going to get thrown back into your hand. You don't even have to hold it. Just stay right there, you know, and then you can slowly put your hands around it, and you'll fly right off. And there's a little knob over here by the throttle, and you're going to fold that knob down. You're going to hold that knob because if you don't, the cat shot will have you where you'll pull the throttle back. You need that full, um, full thrust and going off. And so, sure enough, everything they said came true. But it was very interesting to me because, first, what did they seek to do? They sought to enlighten us as to what we could expect for the purposes of empowering us such that then we would be enabled to do the mission that we've been called to do. And when I think about that, that is, in essence, what Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. It works, the same idea works the same way. Enablement to lead to ultimately to an empowerment. And so last week when we were going through this passage together, we actually just primarily focused on chapter 1 and saw the church being enlightened to everything that God had given them, so many different things that they had received. And, you know, just a quick recap, God had chosen them. God had predestined them for salvation, had redeemed them, elected them, adopted them, justified them, baptized them in the Spirit, and then sealed them in the Spirit. 
So God did all this amazing work. And here it is, he's doing this in a people that are so finite. And yet we find the omnipotent one wanted to create a power in the powerless. So now in chapter 3, we come to another prayer. And it's a prayer for power. Um, if chapter 1 was about enlightenment, chapter 3 is going to be all, be all about enablement. And it's time to go, to move from merely hearing about the things of God to now go off the catapult to then fly in the uh, flight of faith and to be bold and courageous as they did this, confident in the power of God. Now remember, these are people Paul knew. He knew them by, a lot of them by name. He had invested a couple of years in them, had visited them on more than one occasion. And his emphasis ultimately for this church is that they would know God's work of reconciliation in Christ. They would know it and they would pass that message on to others. And he would begin, as he typically did in the synagogue, he started with the Jews, he didn't end there. He started at this point, and then he just began to reverberate out such that he then began to go to Gentiles, a non-Jewish people. Now, what you stop and think about that. That is massive change. You're used to dealing with only these people that are like you in so many regards, and now we're starting to bring people in that are very different from you from so many different levels. You're used to, if you were a Jew, you're used to dealing with things about the law and understanding the Torah and the Old Testament, not the Gentile. They're coming out of all kinds of idolatrous practices, a lot of uh, very immoral acts being exercised in the worship of your God and doing things so differently. And some of these Gentiles have come directly out of that. And they're used to seeing worship done in a completely different way. Have you ever left your church for whatever reason you moved, you go to another church, and all of a sudden, they do worship different. And then you look and you go, oh, I kind of like this. Or maybe for somebody who's like, oh, no, yeah, we need to go back to the way I'm used to. Can you imagine the level of, of difficulty this would have been for a number of people to start looking and saying, okay, this isn't what I grew up with. This is not how I'm used to seeing things done. And worship was different. And so to this very eclectic group of people, Paul has a concern. He knew that before he could deal with the issue, he had to first bring them down to this main point, and that is just to remind them that, that they, and enlighten them to everything that God had granted unto them and given them, to take them into the treasury of God's good riches that he had bestowed upon them, and to turn on the light switch, that they look and they can see around, they go, wow, this is what we have? And Paul could say, yeah, look at it. Taste, touch, feel, smell, experience these things that God has given you. There are immense blessings that they had been given. But then he makes a transition in chapter 2, and he reviews the mystery of how Jewish and Gentile believers had been united into one body. Here it was, they were doing things differently once upon a time, but now they're different and they're coming together. Now, again, let's think about that. you got men and women. Do we have differences? Oh, Yeah. And it doesn't end physically, hormonally, anything. The way we think, the way we operate, very different. You have Jew, you have Gentile. Is that different? Yes. You've got white people. You've got brown people. You've got black people. And the culture that comes with their race. You've got commanders and cowboy fans coming together. That's how you know you have a work of God, when you can bring those two together. You've got vegans and meat eaters coming together. You have snow lovers 
and you have others who say snow is a four-letter word. And they're coming together. You have vaccinators and you have anti-vaccinators. I noticed nobody laughed. Yeah, that's, that, that kind of hits a little too close to home, doesn't it? Because we discovered some things about issues like that back in 2020. It showed us that many churches had a unity based on other things, like politics and policies and preferences. How in the world are you going to get a people who are so different like this on so many levels and unite them to get them rowing all in the same vessel in the same direction? Answer, you can only do it by the power of God. That's how it's going to happen. But now that you have that power, to what end? Where is this meant to go? Why would you pray, Paul, for these people who are so different? Is it so they can get healthy, wealthy, security? What's it going to be about? Well, it's in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts his prayer. And it begins with, for this reason. He's getting you ready because I'm, I'm, this reason is why I pray. But then he gets distracted. It would be kind of like me ending the service and I would say, okay, now let's all stand and bow. And you stand and we're getting ready to pray. And I go, wait a minute, have a seat. I forgot my third point. So you can have your third point. Well, that's what he does in chapter 3. He goes into his next point. And this one, it's a, somewhat of a digression, but he begins to explain his role and how God has appointed him to be the one who would lead, guide, and direct these people into this new dispensation, this new uh, era of how God was going to work through the giving of the Holy Spirit, the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit on the saints, and the mystery of Gentiles coming into the house of faith. So, and he got so excited as he does. When you, if you get a chance, you can read chapter three later because he's reflecting, he's realizing, okay, my goodness, God has done an amazing work. And in saving each of you, he's, he's creating this new identity in each person such that even though we're so vastly different, there is this common denominator and it's gonna be Christ, that there is a new humanity in essence that is being created and brought together. And so, Paul wants to pray for God's power and purposes to be lived out in and through those people. So then you get all the way down to verse 14, and it's almost like he said, all right, I started to pray, now I really am. And so that's where we begin in verse 14. If you wouldn't mind, would you please stand as we read verses 14 through 21. I'll read it, and we'll stand out of respect of the word of God. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to his power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Father and our God, what a prayer. We pray that as we look at this, you would enlighten us, but it wouldn't end there. Empower us 
to live like this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. What is it that we can learn about prayer by listening to one? There's quite a number of things, but I'm only just going to bring us down to about four different things. And that is, first, Paul starts his prayer with the worship of God for his sovereignty and his power. That's where he'll begin. Verse 14, while explaining about the purpose of, of the prayer, he states that he does this with his, before, on his knees before the Father. And it's a way of expressing his recognition uh, that all he has in his submission unto God. Now, some people ask, is he speaking literally or figuratively? You know, are we supposed to be doing this every time we pray? We bow our knee. And um, I, I don't think that this is prescriptive, saying this then is how you need to pray. Otherwise, we would see that in every New Testament text when someone prays, and the Scripture would highlight it. But in the end, what Paul does, is, whether this is literal or figurative, he reveals his heart of worship. That's where he begins. Would you all note that? Worship is more than singing. There's a heart attitude that happens with this. Worship, singing is a component of worship, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the pinnacle of it. Here, it's awe and submission. And awe, as he looks at and he considers the power and the might of God, first of all, to save these people who are so different, and then to unite them and to bring them together. And then worship being an act of submission because that's how God's people show their faith and trust in him. Whatever you want, Lord, that I will do. That's where I'll go. Verse 15 says that he bows his knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And he's not talking about just Christian families here. He's talking about every family throughout the entirety of the world, recognizing that all families have been established by God. You'll remember Genesis 1 and 2, where God takes Male and female, Adam and Eve, and he unites them into one family. And that was his plan. That was his creation. That was his doing, what he has established. And so as Paul looks at the creation order and God's plan in this, that he's the one who can take them, save them, bring them together, and then take these families on top of that and begin to bring them together. It's all an amazing work. And so his emphasis here and God's naming, creating, ordering, and establishing these families and directing marriages stress, stresses God's sovereignty here. It's, it's an act of praise for his power and his plan. And what I pick up out of this, worship happens when those who ultimately are powerless, who see their weaknesses, who know their faults, acknowledge God's sovereign power. This is the God that we're going to go to. Let me ask something. How would your prayers be different if this is how you began in worship in some way, shape, or form? I'm not trying to just give you a formula for prayer, all right, but really more of a mentality that before we ask anything of God, we come and we honor him. I think it's interesting that the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray um, was to let them know, our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed or holy be your name. It's an act of worship. It's recognizing who God is. If y'all were reading the Bible through with us this past week, we've been, we just started in Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah is speaking to the Israelites, and he says this about them, that they followed worthless idols 
and they became worthless themselves. And it's a reminder to me, you conform to what you worship. Whatever it is you worship, you start to conform to that. So here's my question. What kind of God do you worship? What kind of God do you worship? If you're going to ask for power, then you had better believe that he has got it, that he can exercise it, and he can bestow it upon you. And that, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, let's just give you a little discipleship moment. This is a good reason why I would encourage you, when you're praying, do it with an open Bible. Not always. It doesn't always work out that way. But when you can, open your Bible. And as you do, start looking at the truths of God to see the power of God, to see the promises of God in it, to see the character of God in it. And you begin that way, going back to a reflection of, this is who you say you are and what you're doing. And you're to be praised for that. I recognize and see your power. Well, Paul begins by exalting God as the source of life and of new life, of families and of new families. And it's interesting to me, Paul didn't go on for 20 minutes on this, right? You know, he's out here scraping the edge of the universe and talking about all these different things about God. And, and you know, I, I've been guilty of doing that in prayers before with other people. But it's fascinating to me, it's one sentence. That's what he does. But that one sentence is part of what helps him to orient his heart around the request that he has for these people. And so he's going to start with the one who can do something, who has this power. If you've ever been to a store and you've got to return something and you're having problems with it, what is your question after you've bickered back and forth trying to get this thing resolved? I want to speak to the manager. I want to talk to someone who's above you, who has authority, and can take this issue with me and fix it. That's how Paul is. I've got the ultimate manager, and that's where I'll begin. And so the prayer then moves. It's almost like a set of steps that he moves up, reaching higher. And the boundaries of each of these steps is marked with the phrase, in order that. So the first step on this request for these people comes in verse 16. He says, I pray that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit. Where? In the inner man. Paul isn't praying that these people all of a sudden obtain some sort of miraculous power. Now they can just dazzle folks with all that they can do and all that they can accomplish. Instead, it's something that's much more underneath the surface. He's praying for these Ephesians that the Holy Spirit would come on them and begin to have such a controlling influence within their lives and within their heart that they would be strengthened more and more with a spirit-imparted power. So Paul is asking the omnipotent God to empower an impotent people. Power not their own, but one that will be transformative of them from the inside out. And so as Christians, how, do, how does this work, right? I mean, God's going to do all the work, but don't I have to do something? And it, 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 how, how does this get accomplished? Well, it begins for us by faith. We begin in faith, trusting that God wants to do a work in us. And then as he reveals the things that he wants to do in and through us, we yield and we submit to that. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. Um, with, let me use this as an illustration to explain what it is that I mean. A number of years back, I decided instead of using those handheld toothbrushes, I was getting an electric one. And, uh, you know, I'd had my fill of trying to take that thing. You've got to do circles and get the inside, the outside, and everything. And 
Then you got to do it somewhat hard to get the plaque off. And then I found out from the dentist, I'm basically grinding my gums away. So it's a decision. I'm getting that electric toothbrush. And um, it changed everything. I don't have to work at all. I just hit that thing. I put it, I just kind of allow it to move. That's all I'm doing is I'm just holding it. And as I move it throughout my mouth, all of a sudden it starts doing the work and cleaning my teeth. And so now whenever I go to the dentist, they say the same thing every time. Wow, Jack, your teeth are so clean. What kind of toothbrush do you use? And I always do the same thing. Oh, you know, it's a Sonicare Model 3221, circa around 2017. Got about 6,000 revolutions per minute, two and a half minute cycle, gets the job done. And they always say the same thing. You keep up the good work. And I just look at them and I go, you got it. Here's the kicker. I'm not doing any work. It's doing all the work. All I'm doing is just enabling it to be present where it needs to be so that it will accomplish what it can accomplish. You learn all kinds of things in church this morning, right? I don't know if it's a Sonicare 32, 32 or whatever I said. <laughs> you just have to do your own homework on that. It all comes about, though, ultimately by faith. That's it, by faith. And that faith enables me to just do the next thing that God puts before me. And he will do the transformation. It is his power in his spirit. And Paul prays for this, that they would be enabled to live in the power that will do the inner cleaning that they cannot do, but he most certainly can and will. Now, as they have this power, it's meant to do something. And so we move to the next step here in Paul's request, that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. His request that Christ would dwell in their hearts, grounding them, rooting them in love while, finding, while actually comprehending that which is incomprehensible, the love of Jesus. Now note that, wherever the Spirit is, that's where Jesus will be. Christ can only dwell where the Spirit enables that kind of a faith. And Paul, in this prayer, notice what he's doing here. He's, he's talking about all three uh, persons of the Trinity. The prayer goes to the Father, that God's people are powered by the Spirit, that Christ is the one who lives and abides within their hearts. And the goal is not merely just to make some people a little bit more moral. It's much bigger, much deeper than that. Because if Christ is meant to come in their hearts and to take up residence, then that means a complete transformation. He's getting the keys to the front door, changing the lock so that only he can access this, and it becomes his house. And when it's his house, it's his house rules. If you come over to my house, I'll just give you a heads up. I invite you over and you bring your pet. I'm going to welcome you in, but I'm going to say your pet can go in the backyard. But why, Jack? We always bring our pets in the house. Those are your house rules. You're in my house. We live on my house rules. Consequently, when I go to your house and you got pets out, I'm not going to tell you, put the dog in the back unless they're biting me. Uh, but in that case, it's your house rules. You do it and operate in accordance with how you deem fit. 
I was uh, reading this book, excellent book called Fatherland by uh, Burkhard Bigler, fellow who wrote the story of his mother and his grandfather during World War II, and they were Germans, and they were living in Alsace. I think that's the way you pronounce it. I probably should have checked that before I preached on it. Uh, A-L-S-A-C-E. And that was a region that changed hands three times between the late 1800s and World War II. It was French, it was German, it was French. It just kept bouncing back and forth. Well, they're Germans. They're living in this territory. And then when the war started to turn, um, they didn't feel safe because the French started to come in and began to occupy the place. And they knew bad things can happen to us if we remain. So they got out, left their home and everything. Time goes by, they have the chance to go back. They head back into the town to go into their house. Somebody else is living in it. Somebody else who's French, because now it's a French territory. And so they knew that house is lost to us. To the victor belong the spoils. And so it is with Christ. He is the victor of your heart, and he gets the spoils. And so as you bring him in, he comes in with his house rules to take it and to lead it as he deems fit. And so we're trusting him to come in and to make our hearts, our inner lives, his home where he will abide and live. And Paul prays that as you do that and as the spirit empowers you, that you become more and more transformed into the image of the one who owns the house, that you look like it. He says you'll be rooted and grounded in love, rooted being an agricultural term. And everybody here understands and gets that. You've all had, everyone here I'm sure has had at some point to uproot a plant. Well, we had some azaleas in the front yard and we were going to remove them. Boy, what a nightmare that was. Uh, finally rescued by a guy driving by, saw us in our misery, pulled out his four-wheel drive and a chain and wrapped it up around the bushes. And even that was a struggle, getting them out. But that's the image. Paul says, I want you rooted in the love of Christ. That deep. It's hard to pull you out. To say you're grounded in it, that's a building term. And if a foundation is grounded and solid, it's not going anywhere. It is fixed. It's a sure foundation of love. And with that established, verse 18 says, Paul says, I want you to comprehend now, to know. And look at this. With all the saints... If you have your pencil or you have your highlighter on your phone, I want you to highlight that with all the saints. That's a big deal. There is a team mindset here. It's not about us as individuals. Note that. This is a love that you're going to experience from Christ, but you're going to share with one another. It's an experiential love that we are to have. And that means as a Christian, you don't get to audit this. You have to go into the lab of love. And that means you've got to be around other Christians so that the love that you're getting from Christ, you're then sharing with other people. And I know, I mean, for some of you online, hey, you want to be here. Health, issues of life, whatever, travel, it's keeping you away. Everyone knows that, understands that. But there may be some of you, the only reason you're watching this online is because you don't want to be around people. Because you've been hurt. People... People have sharp corners. When you start getting up next to them before long, they're going to scratch you, and it is going to hurt. I don't want to hurt you. I could very well do that, and you probably will to me too. This prayer can't be answered, though, if you're not in and with the believers. It assumes that we are going to be together as we're learning and experiencing this with one another. 
And so when Paul goes on to say, he's speaking about the breadth and the height and the depth and the width, it's a way of speaking really of the vastness of Christ's love. It's a prayer that says, let this finite mind and heart be able to know and experience the love of God. And now that's meant to move you somewhere. And you find again the result of power in verse 19. And I pray for you, in order that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So this goes back to, again, you don't just know things about God. You don't just know facts regarding God. You know him. You experience him. You see him. And it isn't merely about what you've heard, that you now can begin to experience the divine, omnipotent God fully in and through you in both power and you'll experience it in love as well. What a prayer. What kind of power would we see if we prayed this for one another to then begin to experience this with one another? Well, Paul's not done. He's got to go out with a little doxology. The word doxa, meaning glory or splendor, and logos, meaning word. So it's a closing with a glorious word. That's the way his prayer will end, a praise to God. So remember, he's reflected on the power of God that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, and that the omnipotent has chosen to work in us, the all-powerful one in and through the powerless. He prays in verse 20 that God can do way more than all we can ask or even what we can think. That's called infinite. It's going to the place where our minds can't fully get around to begin to see what the infinite power and love of God looks like in us as well as through us. And that our infinite, omnipotent God would surprise us. He would surprise us by his power and be glorified as he's putting it all on display. Are you ready for this? Through us. That God wants to show his glory through you and me. What a prayer. What a prayer, asking the infinite one to give the finite, infinite power and infinite love. Easy to pray, right? How do you live it? Well, let me suggest a few things. Start here. Start by praying it. Maybe even pull this chapter out. And as you're thinking through this and you're praying through that, allow God to begin to reveal things to you through this, and then go to other passages of Scripture. And then as you're going along and you have God's clearly revealed will, whether it's in your character, in your actions, whatever it is, that you are just going to be yielded and submitted unto him to then do what he asks you to do, to do what he commands you to do, to do what at times you're going to feel like is impossible to do. A couple of ideas. When God's word says as you're going through it, that you're to love one another as Christians. And there's somebody that comes to your mind, and you don't love them, and they're not lovely. You kind of loathe them. Maybe they loathe you. Maybe they don't respect you or show something towards you. This is where your prayer begins. Lord, I need power because I don't love them. I want to know the infinite power and love you have. Give me the power to do so. Or when the word says, don't let possessions take over in your heart. And you know that's beginning to happen. 
And instead, God calls you, now I want you to take those possessions and use them, loan them, give them, take your assets, your resources, your money, and put that into God's operations and his work. And then before long, you start to experience this kind of a power. You start finding, you know what? I think I had my security in what I could control with the money and the possessions I had. But now I realize my security isn't in those things. It's in God. And he begins to transform and change you from the inside out. It's bigger than money. It's bigger than your things. It's here. What's God doing in the inner man and woman? When the word of God reveals to you, you're addicted. You're addicted to some things that are taking precedence in your life. And for some of you, it may be chemical vices. And for other, electronic devices. But God's put it on your mind and heart to say, no, 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 no. This is getting too much of your time and absorbing too much of you. And I want you to give that up. And you're looking at it and you're going, but I don't know how. I, what do I even do with my time if I don't invest it in these things? Because you've invested so much. And then you begin to see the power of God as you just yield these things unto him. Or maybe your life is driven way too much by fear. A fear of loss fear of what can happen, and now you start to learn God's word says perfect love casts out fear. Rather than try not to be afraid, allow God to invest his love of Christ in and through me, and now love compels me, and fear just gets pushed out to the side. Or maybe for some of us, it's pride. You're good. You're strong. You're capable. You make, I don't know, a lot of money command and lead a lot of people, run incredible organizations. And those are all good things until we go, this is what my hand has accomplished. And we forget God. And now God is saying, you need to give me that kind of homage and allow me to work in and through you and change that rather than you getting the credit. And God will work on you to show you it's not your power. It's always been his. Tony Evans tells a great story. He talks about a lady who lived at, way out in the boondock somewhere. And uh, where she lived, she didn't have any electricity. And she knew, I, I want to get some. So she was able to get a hold of the electric company and said, would you all come out, run a line out to my house? They said, we'd be happy to. So they did. They came out and they set up their lines and got the cables going, connected her house, and all was well. About six months later, somebody from the power company is just kind of going over the paperwork, and they noticed that this woman is hardly using any power. She'd only use, I don't know, one unit of electricity, however they measure it, in the six-month period that she'd had it. So they went, something's wrong. Something's broke. We've got to get this figured out. So they said, send a repairman out there. We're going to go talk to her. We're going to get this figured out. So he went out, and he rang the door or knocked on it. She answered. She said, yeah, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I'm from the electric company. We noticed that you have power, but it doesn't seem like it's being used. Do you use your electricity? She goes, all the time. Yeah, I use it constantly. And he goes, okay, well, let me ask you this. What are you even using it for? And she goes, well, at night, when it starts to get dark, I turn it on to get the light such that I can light my kerosene lamps. And too often, I think, a lot of us live like that woman, failing to understand the divine power of God in us, ready to work in and through us, that is available for so many things, and we settle for kerosene lives. Paul prays, I don't want you to have a kerosene life. I want you to know the full power that is available. Prayer 
shows us. Start with worship. Start there. Remember God's omnipotent power. Praise him for who he is. Then you can move. And as you pray, pray maybe with the Bible next to you. And remember the omnipotent God can empower you, the impotent person, unable to exercise what needs to happen. And then remember that he wants to your finite mind to begin to grasp, not just in knowledge, but to know and then to experience the incredible power and the love of Christ in you, on you, as well as through you unto others. And then begin to experience the omnipotent person and power of God fully and completely in your life. Would you bow with me? Tom, you can bring your team on up at this time. With the heads bowed, just a quick comment. There may be some of you, you've heard about Jesus, you've known a little something about him, but you've never experienced him. You've never known him to be the one who can actually take your sin away and transform and change you from the inside out. You don't have a clue what that means. Well, a big part of the reason we exist is to help you. But it begins with you bending your knee to say, Father, I come with sin, a lot of things to embarrass myself. You sent Christ to take that away and give me his righteousness. And maybe today you're ready to just receive that. And that's what you do by faith. And then you come let somebody know, whether it's me in the front, somebody in the next step station in the back, and you begin to allow us to help you in that journey. Won't you do so today?